when our lives are comfortable as Christians, we can start to overcomplicate what was intended as radical teaching to follow, not primarily interesting teaching to study. We can start to become better at studying Scripture than we are at obeying Scripture. We can become better at finding really complicated theology and nuance behind the words rather than just running with what we can take hold of. Well, hey, everyone, it's Jason here, and welcome to another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. The Canadian Church Leaders Network exists to come alongside pastors at any stage in their ministry journey to equip and support them. And we desire to connect pastors with one another, hearing each other's stories, walking together, believing that we're better together, and that if we can get a glimpse of the whole story of the church in Canada, it can give us courage and boldness as we live out our part of that story in our context. Today, we've got a conversation coming at you with Katya Adams. She's the pastor at The Table Boston, and she and I had an amazing conversation. Her and her husband, Julian, planted The Table in 2020, and they lead a ministry called Frequency, which is creating amazing resources to strengthen the hearts of Jesus followers all over the world. And I love this conversation with Katya. Like There was so much wisdom and insight that she had and shared. Katya shares about her grandparents and parents who had a profound role in the growth of the church in Iran. And I was so impacted by like the perspective and insight she was able to share from growing up around that environment and knowing her family's story. We also got to talk about how to pray for the cities we find ourselves leading churches in. Like hearing her talk about Boston inspired me personally as I pray for and pastor in Vancouver. And I believe it's going to do the same for you wherever you're listening from. So I can't wait for you to hear that conversation. But before we jump in, I want to take a quick moment and thank Generis for partnering with us to make today's episode possible. Now, Generis exists to help church leaders like yourself weave a culture of generosity into the fabric of your church. Now, I know any conversation about fundraising makes Canadian pastors blush a little bit, but it doesn't have to because generosity is essential to the mission of God in our churches and generis exists to come alongside pastors and churches to help create healthy cultures of generosity so we can step into the mission God has for us. And here's how they do it. They take biblical principles, proven strategies, and then they take time to understand the culture and story of each church that they're working with. And then they build a tailored plan designed for the community. And if you want to find out more, I want to introduce you not to like a random webpage, but to an actual person, John Wright. He was a pastor for many years and now he works with Generis and local churches. So if you want to find out more about the work they do, you can email John directly, john.wright at generis.com, J-O-N.W-R-I-G-H-T at generis.com. Okay. With all of that said, let's jump into today's episode with Katya Adams. Well, Katya, it's really special to be with you. Thanks for making time to hang out with us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. This is going to be a fun conversation. I'd love just to begin by just getting a window into your world, family, church, life in Boston, and even how you found yourself in Boston. So take us into it. Because I know you and I share something in common. We planted church around the same time. You're like two years into this journey. And I just yeah. love to hear all about it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a great story. Um, so my context, yes, we're in Boston. We planted the table uh, two years ago. Um, it's my husband and I, my husband, Julian, who is definitely the better half. You'll have to speak to him another time. But anyway, <laughs> I'm married to the wonderful Julian. I've got two kids, a five-year-old and a six-year-old. So um, I feel like the table is my third baby, basically. Mm. And our life is pretty chaotic, um, but it is full of adventure, which is good. Um, so when we planted the table, you know, it's, it's a long story because I feel like the church plant, um, was in my heart and mind right mm. from me being a teenager. Wow. So it's been a long time coming. Mm. Um, about 20 years ago, I felt God stirring in me a passion for churches in America. I, I was born in Iran. We can go into that story maybe later, but I was born in Iran, grew up in England. And as a teenager in England, I I started feeling a, a real passion for the church in the States mm. um, and just a real hunger to be involved in helping shape churches that understood the kingdom as family and um and were ready to take Jesus at his word. Um I think sometimes we we have this vision of the life of a missionary in a third world country somewhere. Uh, and certainly for me as a child, I was really aware of people, people who described radical followers of Jesus being missionaries. It was always to somewhere that was poor and really third world nations. And um, I I started feeling this sense of frustration around that, recognizing mm. I feel like God wants to do something in nations that seem to have it all together, but mm. they really don't. They need the radical breaking in of the kingdom. So anyway, as a teenager, I was kind of dreaming up what it would look like to move to the States, be involved in planting churches. Um, and then when I met my husband, Julian, we got married. God um, God has a funny way of doing things. He started speaking to us about moving to South Africa in the short term, but simultaneously we were getting all these words about moving to the States in the long term hmm. and had this kind of... Um, short lens and long view of what was coming. And um, as soon as we moved to South Africa, we started getting very specific prophetic words about the mm. East Coast of America and then really started zooming in on Boston. We'd never been to Boston, mm. um, but we, we, you know, we were literally phoned up from people who weren't in the same country as us saying, I had a dream about you moving to Boston. Are you doing wow. that? Or people we didn't know. Um, coming up to us in conferences and saying, I see the word Boston over your head. God is talking to you about, but you know, it, it was, it was so specific that we, we joke now and say we'd either be deaf or disobedient if we mm. didn't move to Boston. It, it was a no brainer that the Lord was in it. But sometimes people say to me, Oh, I, I wish God would speak to me so clearly, or, right. you know, you got 10 prophetic words. I wish that would be the case. And, and I always caution people with that because when God keeps repeating himself, um, either we're being disobedient and he he's saying the same thing again and again until we do it, or he's repeating himself because he knows that on the other side, you're going to need so much courage for what wow. you face that you're going to need the stabilizing uh, kind of strength of 10 prophetic words mm. uh, so that when your courage fails past the first one or the second one or the third one, you've got plenty in the store for you to be able to say, I didn't make this up. 
God mm. brought me here. And if he brought me here, then I'm convinced he's going to see me through all of these challenges. And that certainly was the case for us. God, God kept repeating himself, but the coming to Boston, the planting in Boston, the living in Boston, each stage of it has required so much belief wow. in God to do the impossible. Um, none of it has been plain sailing. None of it has been um, kind of a logical or an easy option. And um, we've really had to lean on the prophetic words, lean wow. on the fact that God said this. And, you know, even this last season for the church financially, loads of stretching and me constantly saying to our community, but this was his idea. And yeah. you know that if it's his idea, then the tab is on him. Mm. Like we, I don't have to worry. If it was my idea, I got to worry. If this was yeah. my suggestion and I brought us here, then it's on me to come up with the finances. When it's his suggestion, you know, if he's the one who asked you out for lunch, then he's the one who's going to pay for lunch. <laughs> it's that sort of scenario that we've got here. So Anyway, that that's kind of uh, we God spoke to us. We ended up going through a really miracle journey of getting visas and coming to the states, and um, and the last two years have seen God uh, prove Himself to be faithful to His word in the most wow. remarkable ways. Um, so yeah, that's a bit about our I journey. We're two years in, and we love our community. I love that so much. It it, it is interesting. I think um, Canada and the U.S. different, however a history of sending missionaries out. And one of the things it seems that God is doing is sending missionaries to us in Canada. Yes. It's the, it's missionaries from Asia coming to teach us to pray what a praying church looks like. Yes. It's church planners from all over the world. It's like Australians coming, teaching us to be bold, you know, and I know I'm generalizing, but I'm, we're sensing this. And it's interesting, yes. even as I pray for Vancouver, I often found myself going, God send ministers from all over the world, you know? And uh, it, it's, it's really interesting to hear you articulate that because I think the U.S. story often is ascending and I feel like that's in their story and it needs to be part of their future. Yes, and they, and they're obviously doing it, but there's a, there's a renewal work that's happening in the North American church. And uh, so thank you for coming, I guess is what I'm saying. Thanks for saying yes. Tell us about Boston. I'd love to hear like, just because I know that the heart of that, like the, of the heart of the missionary, the heart of the church planner is to listen to the space, listen to the city. And yes. as you sort of in your pre-work and then being on the ground, tell us just a bit about the cultural, uh, socio-economic, ethnic makeup of a city like Boston and some of the currents that you're experiencing and, and you're interacting with as you're leading a church there? Sure. I, you know, I feel a little bit mean when I say this, but I feel like God called me to the best city to plant in. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not a competition, but if it was, Boston wins. <laughs> no, it, it really... Um, gosh, this city has my heart. And, and I will just say as an aside, I think if we don't love the places we're called to, mm. we really can't move until we learn to love them. Mm. It's like ministry can't, uh, can't flow from anything other than genuine affection for what we're trying to minister to. Um, and sometimes I hear people talk about the places they're ministering to with such a kind of hard heartedness. Mm. And Jesus never rewarded that in those who were around him. It was compassion wow. that moved Jesus and compassion that he valued in his followers. And we see so many moments in scripture where he was so grieved by the hard heartedness of the Pharisees. And um, 
Anyway, sorry, I'm preaching on something else here, but back to Boston. Take, take those tangents though, because they're <laughs> they're strengthening for me. So you just go for it. <laughs> um, it is an amazing city. I I really believe that Boston is a city designed to be pioneering and prophetic mm. by nature. Um, and you know the the history of Boston is that it's a city that has ignited moves whether it's been a worldly revolution, whether it's been freedom revolution, um, whether it's been great awakening, that this region of mm. the world has, has sparked a lot in the natural and in the supernatural. And I believe there's something of God's design for the city of Boston to, to be prophetic. And really, even in, you know, right now, it's... Um, there is such a liberal agenda at work in this city, but I believe in many ways, Boston is still um, expressing her prophetic destiny in even her pushing the boundaries and liberalism. Now, that is, of course, a broken way to express it. That's the uh, unredeemed way to express it because it's pioneering, it's breaking mm. boundaries. Uh, but there's an element of the city that I see there and think, you're doing what you were designed for just in the wrong direction. Mm. And when we moved here, there were so many people who said to me, oh, gosh, no, don't go to the East Coast. The people there, they're so cold. They, they're not hungry. Uh, you know, Christians using such encouraging phrases like, that's where church plants die. Yeah, I, I heard that so too. Funny. I heard that too a lot, actually. Like, come on. <laughs> I find it funny as Christians say these things to each other. And I'm like, why would you ever use those words? Like, <laughs> how could that ever be helpful? Um, but there was this constant kind of narrative being spoken to us. It's such a hard city. It's such a liberal city. It's such a city that wants to run in the opposite direction of God. And I think as believers, we have to look from heaven uh, when we look at our cities. We have mm. to ask God, what was your design and intention for this city? What is is it that you have created in the wiring of the city? And often um, that wiring is still found even in the broken expressions in our city. We can find the unique mm. intentions of God. Of course, there will be a brokenness in how it's expressed without Jesus. But I feel like we can with prophetic eyes, with sensitive Holy Spirit eyes, we can see what God intended in wow. those characteristics. And then we start declaring redemption over mm -hmm. the direction that the city is moving it into and rather call the city back to its fully redeemed identity. Mm. And with Boston, I feel like it's such a privilege. It's a city that has such intense influence per capita. So many medical pioneers in the city, some of the best universities and um, education hubs in the world in this one relatively small city. Um, so many international leaders come to Boston for a season to learn and to um, kind of get um, upskilled in different areas. For me, I'm like, what a privilege as a church leader. Is it challenging? Of course. Are there strongholds in the city? Yes, like every other. But the point is, there is such kingdom potential here. God must love me very much that hmm. he called me here. That's how I see it. And it's the same for all of us pastors, right? Whatever city we're in, there's a sense, wow, 
God called us. What a privilege. Mm. He looked at us and he thought, I'm going to entrust the potential of this city to your hands, wherever we're placed. Gosh, I don't know if there's a greater privilege than that. So that's kind of Boston. I love this place and really believing that God is stirring up something, uh, sometimes underground here, but a hunger in the city for the things of the kingdom. Mm. And um, I believe definitely the best days of the church in Boston are ahead of us. It's not in the great awakening behind us, um, but God has intention ahead where the great awakening will be a beautiful historical springboard for what he's going to do to surpass that even in the days to come. Wow. Um, I think we might have a friend in common or at least an acquaintance in common in Pete Hughes, and he's been on the podcast before and he really effectively has articulated something that others articulate as well this idea that sometimes that destiny is hidden in the history it's not a looking back that's like we need to repeat the past but it's going hey is there something about the things of our story that actually help us discern and call out what god wants to in the future i just so appreciate the way you articulated that and it sounds like for you it's like part of learning about what God has in store for Boston is looking at its story. And, and then I just yes. was really Im- impacted by you just even to articulating how some of that's expressed in a secular context, but is rooted in some of its identity. Yes. that yeah. That's how God calls individuals, right? We, we mm. say things like people, everyone bears the image of God. We're broken image bearers, but everyone still is an image bearer of God, even though that image might be shattered, even in all of the sin and brokenness, it doesn't negate that every single human being was still created Mm. in the fingerprints of God to bear his image. The same must be true of our cities. And I Mm. think sometimes as Christians, we're the first to speak the worst over our cities. Wow. And we, we have to totally change our own narrative as we declare things over our cities. Wow. Katie, I know you're a prayerful person um, and I'm always like, I feel like I'm still learning to pray for a city. I'm like, what does it mean? Like one of the things that really impacted me, I don't know if you experienced this, but I'd done a lot of ministry before planting in Vancouver, but I felt like a new, uh, like arena opened up in my prayer life for praying for my church and for the city. It was like, it was like a, and I don't fully understand the spiritual authority dynamics, but it was as if it was like, God's like, there's an authority to pray for your city that maybe wasn't there before. And so I just love it if you could just give us a window into how you pray for Boston. Like what, what does it sound like for you to pray for her? Sure. I mean, really practically, uh, I'm one of those people who encounters God in the middle of cities anyway. So Mm -hmm. I feel like I had a head start with this because even before we're moving to Boston, you know, people go to the mountains to meet with Jesus. I go into a bustling city and just get lost in the city. And I, I, I feel like I encounter God just as I walk the streets and I've learned since moving to Boston, um, that there is something about us um, speaking into the atmosphere, um, not being afraid of our words. And so I, I'm often found walking around, um, whether it be speaking in tongues or just speaking declaration over the city. But one of the things I would say about praying over Boston for me, uh, I've been really aware that sometimes Christians can use declarations almost as like a generic formula. 
Right. And we can start like, you know, declaring whatever we want over a city or just super generalized blessings. And we're telling ourselves there's, you know, there's such power in this. And of course, there is power in our words. So there's there's a layer of that. But I feel like that's a very low level of power that we're plugging into there when we're just throwing out any generic statement that could be true anywhere at any time. Uh, I'm finding in these days that I'm really wanting to lean on what Holy Spirit is speaking over the city at a given time. Hmm. Because I do believe that his words, uh, as much as he uses general concepts for us as people in cities, he also speaks specifically to personalities, to individuals. It's not always a cut and paste that could be put anywhere. And I think sometimes when we pray, we rely on the cut and paste version of prayer, where if I come to your prayer meeting, I pray exactly the same thing. And then I can go to California and pray the same thing. And of course, those words are true. It's just devoid of leaning on relationship to hear his voice in that moment mm. for that place. And so a lot of my prayers, honestly, is asking God to speak more specifically to me about what words he's using about Boston. Wow. Trying to hear that and then speaking and praying that and just wanting my words to really echo specifically what he's saying any moment over the city. Mm. So I really, I, I do find that there are some clues in the strongholds that a city has Yeah. Um, because God wants to cut across the noise of that. So Boston, it, it's built on this intellectual pride and it's it's got such a sense of um, logic and reason being held in high regard. The hierarchy in this city, uh, of course, there is a financial one, but it tends to be an intellectual one. Mm. Those with the greatest minds are the most revered. And there is something to be said about God cutting across that noise with the foolishness of the gospel. Mm. And so I do often find myself praying uh, for the wisdom and revelation of God uh, to, to even in the... Um, just the complete foolishness that it can be packaged in for human beings, that people would find themselves stumbling on the, the incredible wisdom of God that looks completely nonsensical to them, but that that wisdom would unravel the wisdom of man. Mm. Because if Boston is to encounter God in the fullness of God's invitation to us, one of the things I believe he wants to unravel is the, ide uh, the idol of human intellect. Not that intellect is bad, but when it's an idol, it's bad. Mm. And, um, there's something of that specifically for this yeah. city. So that's one of the prayers that I really pray a lot is um, the wisdom of God to dawn in this place in a remarkable wow. way. I love that. I love that. I'd love to rewind in your story a little bit. You kind mm -hmm. of gave us these plot points from Iran to England to South Africa to yeah. Boston. And I just love to hear about um, take us to England and then take us to Iran and, and a bit about your family. And sure. um, the the heritage that you're coming from in terms of church planting, in terms of church leadership, in terms of mission, all those things. Because yeah. um, I think it's a really powerful window into what you're doing now with this as the backdrop. Yes. Yeah. It, you know, I used to almost be a little bit embarrassed about my story uh, because I was very aware that the majority of the story 
it has got nothing to do with me. And I'd feel like almost like a fraud, um, kind of describing someone, you know, other individual yeah. stories and claiming it as if it somehow impacts me until I felt the Lord really speak to me and say, no, no, this is this is how the kingdom is meant to work. Mm. You're meant to stand on the legacy, legacy of others. And when you're embarrassed about the gift that I've given you, you are wanting to undo one of the gifts of the kingdom. And so I, I've learned in recent years to really... Um, celebrate how God set me up uh, because I believe if our stories have a setup of legacy, uh, gratitude allows that to multiply. And if our stories don't have that, God is inviting us to start that wow. for future generations to build on. on. Whether you've got it in the past or you don't, the point is this is the vision that God wants to give us to build so beyond ourselves that one day, you know, our grandchildren will be sitting together. Probably it will be a different technological era. Yeah. <laughs> but my pray- prayer is that they will be able to trace their stories way back, even from our stories, mm. and recognize that our stories set them up for an increase in the kingdom. Wow. So my story starts really, the fun part starts with my grandfather. Um he was born in Iran, raised in Iran. Um, at that point, we're talking, you know, back in the 1940s, there really wasn't a church to speak of in Iran. If there were Christians, um, maybe they numbered in the hundreds across the entire nation, millions of people. Um, my grandfather had never met anyone who uh, really was a follower of Jesus. Um, my family are ethnically Armenian. And in the Armenian community, uh, there's kind of a cultural Orthodox Christianity but certainly in the community that he was amongst in Iran, uh, there weren't there, there was some cultural Christianity. There was no authentic following of Jesus. Mm. And um, he met an American missionary, actually. So I, I will forever be grateful for American missionaries who go across the world. Wow. Um, he met an American missionary who gave him a New Testament. And he read the New Testament um, and just read it really in one sitting. He he couldn't stop reading. He was so overwhelmed by this truth that grasped him. He gave his life to the Lord um, and just um, from that moment really became a very passionate believer. Um, he, because he really didn't know any Christians, he joined what was a kind of orthodox community. Uh, really, we're still unsure, even when he told the story, if anyone there was actually saved. But anyway, that was the only expression of church that he could find. And he just kept reading the New Testament mm. to, to learn how to be a follower of Jesus. He had no frame of reference. And uh, in reading the book of Acts, he he realized the person of the Holy Spirit seems to be a pretty big deal in the New Testament. And um, and so he decided he'd do what he saw the disciples doing, that he would wow. fast and pray until he was he received the baptism of the spirit and he really was going off the manual of the scriptures you know, sometimes when there is no christian culture around you it frees you to actually believe what the bible says mm. 
when there is Christian wow. culture already set around you, uh, often our Christian culture negates the words of Scripture, and Christians find themselves learning all sorts of incorrect things because of the culture around us, uh, Christian culture, Christian kind of culture, rather than taking the words of the New Testament seriously. So he was free from any kind of culture set around him other than what he saw in the words of Scripture. And so he started fasting and praying. He fasted. He only drank water for 42 days and absolutely nothing happened mm. and so he thought okay i've got it must have got it wrong i'm gonna quit my fast um and i think really the holy spirit was trying to teach him that um there, there's not a formula that earns us favor mm. because he, he his initial walk was i'll just I'll just do exactly this and it must work. The, the result will be the same. And that God is often more creative than that. But a few days after he broke his fast, he was cycling back from work and Holy Spirit knocked him off his bike. He fell onto the ground. He was baptized in the spirit, started speaking in tongues. Now, again, he had no frame of reference. For, he'd never seen anyone who spoke in tongues. He didn't know these things other than what he read, but he started speaking in this other language. He went home, told my grandmother, they had six kids at the time. My dad was six, told them all what had happened. And the next morning, while they were in their house getting ready for the day, just an ordinary day, the Holy Spirit fell on their house and all of them in different parts of their house were baptized in the Spirit, started speaking in tongues um, from the youngest, my uncle was three, from the youngest all the way to the oldest. Mm. And that really started the modern day church in Iran. Wow. They opened their doors, um, had nightly meetings in their house for three years. You know, sometimes we ask for revival, uh, but we're not willing to be. Sounds exhausting. <laughs> yeah, we're not willing for any inconvenience. You know, yeah. right now, God says to me, give $20 to someone, and I don't want that inconvenience. And yet here I am in my room praying for revival. If you want revival, you've got to understand your life will be turned upside down. Wow. If we're not willing to follow the very really easy promptings of the spirit now uh, we don't want to be praying for revival there's mm. going to be promptings of the spirit that gets the, get us to do crazy things mm. but so they opened their doors and uh hundreds thousands of people encountered god in their wow. in their house and um and what are the social uh, implications of that like where there's not a christian experience that come with any like pushback persecution pressure or what's happening at that yes. time we're in, we're in the mid 1940s at this point or what where are we in the timeline by this point it was um 1940s 1950s okay. um and um yes there was pushback interestingly the persecution that they experienced this is before just so for iranian kind of history anyone who's aware of iran now right now there's an islamic government in iran that wasn't the case then and whilst christianity wasn't uh a celebrated or approved of religion, it it wasn't quite as frowned upon okay. as it is right now. Yeah. So that was before the Islamic Revolution. But my uh, the family had a lot of persecution actually from their Armenian neighbors mm -hmm. because historically the Armenian community in Iran has very much kept to itself and has kind of had a level of... Um, I want to say this kindly, but really is a level of pride against their Iranian neighbors. They they didn't, they were, for, the Armenian community was 
forcibly moved to Iran generations ago. Hmm. And so there's been an element of a protection and defense yeah. mechanism in that community, which really has said, we will stay within our culture and we will celebrate who we are and we will not assimilate um, because that's been seen as a level of defeat. So when my grandfather, and really, if we think of the early church, this would be incredibly true to what the early church went through. When my grandfather opened his doors to Iranians, Armenians, anybody, his Armenian neighbors were the ones who were scandalized because they were the ones saying, how dare you mm. allow Iranians into our community? How dare you? Uh, you know, there was some level of Christian culture, I'd said, in the Armenian community. So, you know, how dare you give them what is our culture? They didn't see it as revival or, or God saving people. They saw it as a a defiling, if you like, mm. of their culture. And I think to the early church, and sometimes we read the New Testament so, so clinically, but the mixing of Jew and Gentile, it, it, it would have been so offensive across yeah. the board. The Jewish Christians would have struggled the whole time of what does this look like? How dare we defile what's been given us? It's a work of the spirit that only that can allow for that kind of um, family bond across racial groups. And um, so there was a persecution for sure, but they they saw God do amazing things, remarkable healings, um, visitations from God, that things that feel felt like the New Testament. Mm -hmm. They saw it happening amongst them. And um, they ended up building an upper room in their house, um, which really became essentially the first church building. Wow. And um, which then grew and multiplied. And and now there are millions of believers in wow. Iran. There is wow. an underground revival that is happening, you know, by some statistics. I, I smile at these statistics because I'm not quite sure how we find these things out. <laughs> but anyway, by some statistics, Iran has the fastest growing church currently it's just an underground wildfire. Wow. Um, and even as persecution came in the 1970s, increasingly, um, persecution is a way that God doesn't send it, but God uses it. And the church has grown at an increased rate, wow. um, even in the midst of persecution. Um so yeah, that was my story. But we, by the time I I was born, my parents were a kind of both in ministry and in business. Um, we lived in Iran during the Iran-Iraq war, some of my earliest memories and actually earliest encounters with Jesus were during the Iran-Iraq war, where wow. I really experienced his um, tangible love and peace in the midst of bombs falling around our house. Yeah. Um, and that really was probably my earliest experiences and conviction that God is real and he's with me, that he mm. sees me individually, not just my family, but little four-year-old Katya frightened praying, God sees yeah. me. And, um, and then when I was five years old, God started speaking to my parents about moving to the UK, but starting an underground apostolic movement um, amongst Iranian refugees all over the world. 
um, and also underground in Iran. And so they moved to the UK. And since uh, we moved to the UK, my parents launched this movement and have, have planted hundreds of churches, have seen hundreds of thousands of Muslims turn to Christ. They still um, lead this movement. Um, and so really, I mean, God set me up. He set mm. me up with a vision for the nations. He set me up to believe in the in the power of the spirit. You know, sometimes people want to have theological conversations with me, which I love theology. I love study. I, I am passionate about depth in scripture. Um, but, you know, conversations about does the spirit move today and are the gifts relevant today? And what does baptism in the spirit? spirit look like today the problem is i learned all of those things before i could read and write um you know it's difficult to argue that theologically when you've experienced his presence powerfully mm. and um and so god set me up with a conviction for for all of these things for the power of planting churches and how the church is is the vehicle of god's redemptive grace across the world um i, I believe it pains god um when we discard the church Mm. When we, even through, uh, I'm not saying people don't experience hurt through the church. Of course, people experience hurt. It's human beings that fill the church. None of us are perfect. But I believe it really grieves the heart of God when we are quick to discard uh, mm. what is part of his design to bring the kingdom on the earth today. Mm. And so um, past moments of hurt from the church, moments of difficulty in the church, I I firmly believe in in God's power working through the church today, um, but anyway, there you go. That's oh, that's a bit of my story. But thank it's, you it's a so long much. Story, but yeah, God has been I, kind. <laughs> I'm so grateful to hear that. Um, what do you think? And this is a huge question, and so you just you can just take a chunk of it. What do you think the church in Canada, America, has to learn from people like your grandparents, <laughs> your mom and dad, those? planting churches where you can't do capital campaigns. And, you know, I think that's a different context. And so in one sense, we there's a sense to which you can't compare, but there's another sense by where it's like, I'm, there's got to be lots to learn. And I, I really feel like we have an opportunity in this moment. Part of the gift of technology is the church in Canada doesn't just have to learn from the church in the States or in Canada. We can look to the the global church and our friends. And I, in the pandemic, I was so struck by the idea of like, how are we going to do church? without gathering it's like well there's people around the world who are like this is not this is our normal and i just think one of the things i hope we glean from pandemic time is we have brothers and sisters who by god's grace have lots to teach us and so um yes. what do you think what do you think are some of the things that maybe if we have ears or eyes ears to hear eyes to see we could learn uh, from our brothers and sisters around the world yeah it's a great question I love the heart behind the question. Um, I think sometimes we can get so um, arrogant in our experiences that we believe we are the only teachers for the world. Mm -hmm. And um, God in his vast wisdom has created an entire body across the world. And each cell has something to speak to another cell. Mm. And each member of the body has something to teach. And I, I just love the, uh, the heart of your question because I don't think enough, enough of us think that way. We're so quick to want to teach others, but the learning is something that requires a different kind of humility. 
I think what the persecuted church um, really, especially churches that are are in the midst of such desperation, whether due to persecution or poverty, uh, whatever it might be, in those contexts, the church really um, finds the simple gospel enough for all its needs. Mm. And I think there is something profound for us to learn in looking to simplicity of Jesus' teachings. Um, Here's what I mean by this. I think when when our lives are comfortable as Christians and when we have the privilege of lots of experience, lots of options, um, lots of learning, we can start to overcomplicate what was intended as radical teaching to follow, not primarily interesting teaching to study. Mm. And I think what we can fall into obviously this is not everyone this is a uh, this is some of us in the in the church where we're living in relative comfort uh, we can start to become better at studying scripture than we are at obeying scripture we can become better at finding really complicated theology and nuance behind the words rather than um just running with what we can take hold of um the church where it's in desperation, where there's uh, poverty and persecution, uh, honestly, they don't have the time for complex theological debate. Mm. They read the word. And then the real question is, am I going to believe enough to put everything on the line to follow this? Or am I not? That, that's that's a very simple question. Do, do these words actually matter enough to follow them or not? And at that point, they're not having long-winded debates about everything. They're just saying, this says to do this, therefore I will do it. Until I'm told otherwise by God to stop doing that, I'll just keep doing that, right? It's, there's a simplicity. Now, I'm not saying... I'm not saying we have to be the church always in simplicity, but I think the church in the West has lost Mm. a simple radical obedience, uh, partly because complicating things buys us time. Mm. And uh, we we kind of wanting, (laughs) let's just talk about that again. Let's just think about that. Oh, hang on. Before you give generously, let's just find the 25 other verses to to make sure that we've thought about this really carefully. Are you definitely meant to be? Right. That's all takes time. Whereas churches in in kind of desperation, they found a verse, they feel Holy Spirit on it. They're doing it Uh, because there's there's an urgency. Mm. That's how the church was birthed. That there was an urgency in the early church. And um, I'm not saying that's the pinnacle of the church, but I do think that's an element that we can learn, that we can regain, mm. is, a, is a simple, radical obedience, not a motivation to, um, to throw in some human wisdom to somehow make the gospel a little easier to follow. Mm. It, it really is radical. There's no way around it. Mm. And um, yeah, I think, I you know, that. that's one of the things I think the persecuted church, of course, teaches us courage in the yeah. face of adversity. Um, and, and I do want to say this. I hope this doesn't offend anyone, but things that inconvenience us, particularly inconvenience our preferences, those are not persecution. 
there there are people who are literally being hanged because they will refuse to publicly recant the following of Jesus. Mm. That's persecution. Someone treading on my preference for the way something is done is not persecution. Someone opposing my words about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, that's persecution. Mm. And I, I feel like when we get too comfortable, we can just start getting easily offendable, which is actually an ungodly characteristic. And we can couch it in spiritualized terms like I'm being persecuted. No, no, we're just too easily offended. We need to have hearts that are bigger with compassion and grace to others. Mm. Um and we need to understand what true persecution is. Anyway, I hope I don't offend, but that <laughs> from someone who's lived in the context of the persecuted world, I, I think we dishonor those who pay a price by suggesting that our slight inconveniences are a big price to pay. Mm. Um, it's it's just not the truth. Anyway. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing it. Um, where, are you, where are you finding the most hope right now? in Boston, in the American church, in the global, what, what, what are you seeing that God is doing or in the life of the church that you're going, and there's lots of hope to be had here? Oh, there's so much hope, isn't there? You know, I, I feel like all of the time that it's something that is really on a daily basis. I am encountering believers who are being stirred up in hunger for the more of the kingdom. Mm. Um, and you're right. So, you know, sometimes e even with some of, you know, where I've gone in conversation, we can, sometimes we can look at what we're not getting right. But what I am so aware of overarching everything is that God is so good at initiating hunger in us. And he is doing that in the mm. body. Um, I say to our church often that, you know, if we want to ignite hunger in other people, we the best way to do it isn't to draw a picture of bread and say to people, here's a picture of bread. It will feel, you know, feed you really well. Bread is delicious to eat. The best way to do it is to bake some bread. The fragrance of bread ignites hunger, even in those who feel full, right? You, you've just had a great meal. You walk into a, into a bakery where they're baking fresh bread and you can't help it, but you start thinking, oh my goodness, something yeah. really good is happening here, right? It ignites something in you, even before you're consciously aware of what's happening. Uh, God is the ultimate baker. Mm. And I can see that he's doing that across the body, that there is uh, an invitation that is increasingly coming to the people of God, where we're smelling the fresh bread of heaven, where there is a stirring that only Holy Spirit can bring. It's an act of God. Um, but I'm seeing it happen more and more so, where people are talking of their hunger that is being ignited. And that gives me so much hope for the church and so much hope for what can come out of the church. Mm. Because if God is doing it in us, he wants to do it through us. And um, I'm excited both for him stirring me up in hunger and then for the reality of the deposit of the Spirit of God in us that basically allows us to fresh uh, to bake fresh bread in our churches and open the doors and just allow the fragrance of the, the bread of life to wow. fill our cities and to ignite hunger wherever we are. So, yes, I'm very hopeful. I feel it's that. good news. I feel that one of the unique experiences just chatting with you today, Katya, is just you just 
you have a contagious hope, love for God. So I'm just grateful for you spending time with us. For everyone listening in, appreciate your time so much today. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Well, huge thanks to Katya for taking the time to chat with us today. If you want to connect more with her work, the ministry happening through The Table Boston or Frequency, there are links to all of her work in the show notes below. And before we sign off, I want to say a special thank you to some team members, to Josh Thompson from our team and Christina Mullen from The Table Boston for helping set up this conversation with Katya. Special thanks to Will Lee and Jaden Newfeld for producing this week's episode. And our team loves being able to create these episodes. We put a lot of love and care into them. And we're only able to do them because of generous partner organizations like Generis, but also because of individuals and churches who have committed to partnering with the work of CCLN. If you want to join that group of regular givers, we've made that as easy as possible for you to do. Just head to cclnca slash partner to find out more about what it look like for you or your church to partner with the work of CCLN to encourage church leaders across Canada. Okay, that's it from me today. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. Bye for now. Bye for now.